0: Let's take our Bibles this morning, please. Turn to 1 Samuel, chapter 15. 1 Samuel, chapter 15. And we're going to continue the series asking the question, At What Cost?, a series that evaluates the choices in the lives of individuals. Now, some of the choices that were made were good choices, even though they led to persecution of the individual. Many of the choices that were made were bad decisions resulting in lasting consequences. Last week, we examined the choice of Adam, a choice of convenience over the consequences. You know, some of the consequences of Adam's choice are still in effect today, right? Don't think that your choices don't have lasting consequences, Today, we are going to look again at another man's choice and the consequences of that choice. And remember this statement that I showed you last week, we're gonna look at it again. Life is choices, or statements. Three simple sentences. Choices have consequences, make right choices. Really life is that simple, folks. Every day you get up and you start making choices. Should I get up now or should I throw the alarm across the room? Throwing the alarm across the room sounds like a good option many mornings, I know. Should I wear the blue pinstripe suit or should I wear the black suit? Should I wear a blue shirt, a white shirt? Should I have bacon? If you have to ask that question, if I should have bacon for breakfast, there's something wrong with you, okay, so. (laughs) But it is a choice. If you choose the oatmeal, God bless you but then the consequences of those choices. So while the bacon is the right choice, the consequences of the bacon may not be the consequences we wanted. (laughs) So we need to make right choices in all of life. We're going to look at King Saul and the choices he made. Saul viewed the opinions of man greater than obedience to God. So if you are physically able, if you would please stand with me as we read 1 Samuel chapter 15. And we're going to read the first 23 verses. Again, a little bit lengthy passage, but let's go ahead and read here. 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Samuel also said unto Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken unto the voice of the words. Of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of Hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how that he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them, and tell tell them. 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah unto comest to Shur, that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse that they destroyed utterly. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. When Samuel rose up early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, He set up a place and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaneth then the bleeding of the sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest have we utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said unto me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey, and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took unto spoil the sheep of the oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice in the Lord thy God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of Ram, for rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Let us look to the Lord for guidance, please. Father, as we examine this passage this morning. And look at this choice made by Saul. May we be reminded, Lord, not to look at the opinions of men, but, Lord, to focus on obedience to you. And as we see the consequences of the choice that Saul made, may we be reminded again that all the choices we make will have consequences, whether good or bad. So, Lord, help us in our lives to make the right choices. And to this end we pray and thank you for it in Christ's name amen thank you. you may be seated we're going to examine this very similarly to what we did last week and that is looking at the context of the account what happened in this situation then we're going to look at the choice that was made and the consequences of that choice understanding that god wants us christians to obey him so let's look a little bit about who are these people the amalekites Why is God telling Saul, destroy the Amalekites? Well, I'm glad you asked. And let's go ahead and go back and let's look at a few passages and see who these people are. So take a marker and put it here in 1 Samuel 15. And let's go back to the book of Exodus, please. Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. We have recorded for us this group of people called the Amalekites and we see partially here and then in another passage why God is saying to destroy these Amalekites. In Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 8, it says, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel and refit him. And Moses said to Joshua, choose, out, choose us out, men, and go out and fight with Amalek tomorrow, and I will stand at the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek and Moses, Aaron, and Hur, went to the top of the hill and it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, the Amalekite prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy and they took a stone and put it under him and sat thereon. and Aaron and Hur stayed his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomforted Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So we see here this passage of them fighting with Amalek. But let's go on to verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and came, and the name of it was Jehovah Nissi, which is the Lord is my banner. And he said, because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So God says he's going to put out the remembrance of Amalek. Now, this is the war that happened. Let's go look at the reasoning for this or how the Amalek did this. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 25, please. Deuteronomy chapter 25. And I promise you, we're not going to keep going through a whole lot of history, but I want to lay down this history because it gives an understanding of what is happening in 1 Samuel chapter 15. So Deuteronomy chapter 25, and let's start at verse 17. It says, Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when you were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way and smote the hindermost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. Therefore it shall be, when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Thou shalt not forget it. So here's what Amalek had done. They, were, they weren't a courageous warrior attacking from the front of Israel. What they started doing is attacking from the rear. Why? Because when you have over a million people moving, who's going to end up in the rear? It's going to be your sick people, your, your ones that are having a struggle, those that are faint, those that are tired, those that are weary. And so which are the easiest to pick off? And so what does Amalek do? Well, he he attacks from the rear and starts taking out the uh, the weak and the sickly and the elderly and those that were kind of lagging behind. A very cowardly act in war, is it not? And so God said, I want you to remember what Amalek did to you. Now, yes, Uh, Moses did have Joshua attack them, but unfortunately they did not totally annihilate them. But God said, because of what they have done to my people, I want it to be remembered. And there's going to come a day when all of the Amalekites are going to be killed. Anybody have any idea how many years passed between the time that this was predicted by God in Deuteronomy and the time it actually happened in 1 Samuel 15? Approximately 400 years. Here's the point I want you to understand God, when He promises judgment, it will happen, but it doesn't always have to happen immediately. What God said will come to pass, will come to pass. But does not the Bible even tell us in 1 Peter that in the latter days scoffers will come saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And do we not see scoffers today saying, ha ha, Christian, you believe Jesus Christ is coming again. Here we are 2,000 years later. He still hasn't come. I can't believe you believe those fairy tales of the Bible. But God said it's going to happen. And just as much as he said it will happen, one day it will. And man should be thankful that the judgment of God hasn't fallen so quickly because he's still giving grace and a time for repentance. And as long as God is giving man a time to repent, Christian, you and I need to be, re, uh, be active in sharing the gospel because we don't know how much longer we have. And so God said that they were to be destroyed for what they had done, and although it wasn't immediate, it would happen. Just as the scoffers mocked that God is gonna judge sin, One day, every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. And it is an appointment for which no one will be late. But understand, God has said, if a people will return to him and repent, that he will have mercy on them. Understand, that had any point, the Amalekites turned to God and repented of what they had done, God would extend forgiveness. They never did. You see, because some ask, well, why is God, you know, the Old Testament God seems so different than the New Testament God. No, his character never changed. Well, he was so angry in the Old Testament, he wanted to kill everybody. You do realize, even as the... Uh, the uh, um, Israelites were wandering 40 years in the wilderness, he was extending his mercy to the Canaanites to repent. Because did did not Rahab tell the spies, we fear your God because we know what he did to deliver you out of Egypt? That means they had heard about God, they knew the power of God, and she's the only one in the entire land who said, wait a minute, our gods don't do that. There's something different about their God than our gods. I think I want to follow him. They all had the opportunity to exude exactly what Rahab had done. They chose not to. And the reason why God said to kill them all is because he knew that their wickedness would influence his people. And he was trying to keep the Jews pure. And understand something. We don't have to understand all the ways of God, but we can trust that his way is always perfect. Right? Well, then let's talk about Saul a little bit. Let's go back to the book of 1 Samuel. And let's go back just a couple chapters now in 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. Now there was a man of Bethlehem whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bicorath, Beko- the son of Ephelia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person that, than he, for from his shoulders and upward he was higher than any of the people. And the asses, asses of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to Saul his son, Take now one of the servants with thee, and arise and go and seek the asses. And he passed through Mount Ephraim, and passed through the land of Shelisha And they found them not, and they passed through the land of Shalem, and there, and there they were not. And he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they found them not. And when they were come to the land of Zaph, Saul said to his servant that was with him, Come and let us return, lest my father leave caring for the asses and take thought for us. And he said unto him, Behold, now there is in the city a man of God. He is an honorable man. All that he saith com- cometh surely to pass. Now let us go thither, per he can show us the way that we should go. Then said Saul to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring to man for The bread is spent in our vessels, and there is not a present to bring the man of God. What have we? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have here at hand a fourth part of a shekel of silver, that we may give it to the man of God to tell us on our way. Before in Israel, when a man went and inquired of God, thus he spake, Come, let us go to the seer, for he hath now called a prophet, but before time he is called a seer. Then saith Saul to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went in the city where there was a man of God was. So here, let me just stop for a moment. Here we see Saul, the son of Kish, the donkeys got loose, and so he's out chasing them, and he goes from one city, and nope, they're not here, and he goes to another city, nope, they're not here, goes to another city. This shows a man who's willing to seek and willing to do what needs to be done to get the job done, right? He didn't just go, you know, I don't see him, Dad, I don't know what happened. You know, like like a lot of young people today, I don't know, why don't you go find him yourself, right? I mean, because unfortunately young people do talk to their parents that way anymore. But no, he was an industrious young man. And then when he's going to go get advice from the man of God, from the seer, from the prophet, he wants to take a gift to him. Again, showing that he understands that, hey, you know, a man is worthy of his hire and he needs to take care of him. So we see one who is a principled young man, if you will let's go down to verse 15. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came saying tomorrow about this time I will send a man out of the land of Benjamin and thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people Israel that he may serve my people out of the hand of the Philistines for I have looked upon my people because their cries come unto me and when Samuel saw Saul the Lord said unto him behold the man whom I speak to thee of this is his This same shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, I pray thee, where is the seer's house is? And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer, go up before me into the high place, for ye shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let thee go, and will tell thee all that is in thine heart. And as for the asses that were lost three days ago, set not thy mind on them, for they are found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel... Is it not on thee and in thy father's house? And Saul answered and said, Am not I a Benjamin, of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou so of me? What do you see here? I see a humility in Saul. He's like, What are you talking to me like that for? I'm not anybody special. What do you mean that I'm the desire of all of Israel? Well, let's look at one more passage in the history here. Let's go over to chapter 10 and verse 17. In chapter 10 and verse 17, Samuel called the people together unto the Lord in Mizpah and said to the children of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you out of the land, hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all the kingdoms and them that oppress you. And ye have this day rejected your God, who himself saved you out of all the adversities and your tribulations, have said unto him, Nay, but we see set but set as a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. And when he caused the tribes of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was taken, and, and Saul of the son of Kish was taken. And when they saw him, they could not, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired the Lord further, if a man should yet come thither. And the Lord answered, behold, he has hid himself among the stuff. And they ran and fetched him thence. And when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people from his head and shoulders upward. So here we have Saul to be anointed king. And when he gets called out, they're like, well, where is he? And God has to tell him, well, he's over there hiding. Okay, I don't think it was because he was cowardly. I think it's because Saul realized the gravity of being king, and there was a humility to Saul, right? My point being this. As we read through 1 Samuel, we see Saul starting out pretty well. He's following his dad. He's very industrious. He's he's seeking counsel from God. He seems to have a humility to him. But what happens as soon as he puts on that crown? You ever hear the phrase power corrupts and absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. When we go just five chapters later and Samuel, the same council, the same godly man who anointed Saul king now comes from God with orders for the king. I want you to kill the Amalekites. And in case you don't understand what that means, I want you to kill all the men I want you to kill all the women. I want you to kill all the infants. I want you to kill their horse or their, their oxen. I want you to kill their sheep. I want you to kill the donkeys. I want and uh, anything that's alive, it won't be when you're done, right? I want you to destroy it all. That was a pretty clear command. Here's the problem: Saul got too big for his britches. He decided his way was better than God's way. Let's look at. First Samuel chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember what Malachite did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but both slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox, sheep, camel, and ass. Everything. God didn't say, save the best for sacrifice. You see, because when we sacrifice, it's supposed to cost us something. And so saying, hey, we're going to kill them off anyhow, so why don't we say the best and offer it to God? What did that really cost? Nothing. It wasn't a real sacrifice. It's kind of like, hey, I'll just give you this. It's an it's a emotion you're going through and sacrificing the animal, but at what cost to me personally? Well, nothing, because I, stole it. I took it from them when we killed them off. Do you follow my point? Yeah, how often do we try to do that exact same thing to God today? Now, we don't offer animal sacrifices, but we offer, ah, that's kind of a leftover. Let's give that to God. You know what I'm saying? Instead of offering the first fruits, instead of offering the best to God, I believe saving the spoils of the enemy to sacrifice to God was demeaning to the sacrifices that God had set up. So let's look at the choice made. Saul's pride tainted his decision. Verse 7, and Samuel said, When thou wast little, And I know'n sight, Saul. When you were so small in your own eyes, that when I went to anoint you king, you went and hid. Now, Saul, your pride is way too big. He says, "Wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel?" His pride determined that God was wrong in destroying all. He thought my way of saving these animals and using them for sacrifice is better than God's way you and I don't always have to understand God's ways but we're not the question because his way is perfect his way is right but pride will lead to destruction Proverbs eleven two: when pride cometh then cometh shame but with the lowly is wisdom only by pride cometh contention how often does our pride get in the way But we also see in this choice that Saul made, partial obedience is disobedience. Saul thought, well, surely when God said, kill them all, if we save the best of the animals for sacrifice to God, that'll please God, because after all, we're giving it to him. He thought, my thoughts here, my way of doing this, just not following completely, but I'm still gonna give it to God, so it's okay. God says in verses 22 and 23, verses that we have probably, most of us have heard since we were children. Samuel said, Hath the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. So you can make an excuse that you're going to use it for sacrifice, but that's not what God wants. What God wants is your heart of obedience. As a matter of fact, the whole purpose of the sacrifices was as a way to show God their obedience to him. And yet he is disobeying God in order to do something really good. And God says, get this in verse 23, for rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. You see, we put these classifications on sin. Well, it was a little white lie. It wasn't that bad. It was just a little disobedience. God says, Saul, it was rebellion and stubbornness. And I equate rebellion to witchcraft. And I equate stubbornness to, what's it say in verse 23? Iniquity and idolatry. In other words, God is saying, I don't classify sin, Saul. Your sin is still wicked and vile in my eyes. And you made a deliberate choice of your will to disobey what I told you, Saul, because Saul heard it from Samuel, the direct message of the Lord that said, kill men, women, children, children, and all the animals, and goes through and names the animals just so he would get it right. But Saul says, what God really meant was, and let me tell you, there's a lot of so-called preachers out there that do the same thing with God's word today. Well, it really, it, it doesn't really mean that. What it means is, no, listen, what God said is what God said, and that's what he meant. And you and I have the responsibility of preaching and teaching the word of God the way God gave it, not the way we want it to be. Saul tried saying that the animals for sacrifice should be acceptable. You see, he was trying to use the logic of the end justifies the means. I mean, after all, look at what good we're going to accomplish in this. So as long as we have a good end, it doesn't matter how you get there, as long as you get there. How often do we hear that logic used today? And you know what? It displeases God as much today as it did then because how we get there does matter. The ends does not justify the means. The means needs to be a godly means of getting there, right? Saul chose reputation over relationship. You say, what do you mean? You see, and we'll talk more about this when we talk about the consequences, but Saul never took personal responsibility for what he did. He blamed the people. And his relationship with the people, pleasing people, meant more to Saul than his relationship with God. Because did God not cut him off from this point forward? His listening to people, trying to please the people, meant more to him than obedience to God. Let me tell you something. That temptation is for every one of us. It doesn't matter what position you're in, whether it be a parent at home. Well, you know, if I discipline my children, they're going to be upset. Let me tell you something. The temporary upset of your children Versus the lasting consequences to let them just make their own choices, is worth it. Whether it be boss at work, whether it be a head of some organization, whether it be as a pastor, the temptation is always trying to, well, you know, if I do that, people aren't going to be happy with me. And, you know, we got to get over it and say there's going to be times people aren't going to be happy, but right is still right and wrong is still wrong. And I'm going to please God and not men. Let's not choose reputation over our relationship with God. And so that brings us then, we've looked at the context, how the Amalekites had done this wickedness. They deserved to die. Saul started out a humble young man, but became very proud. Saul made a horrible choice in not killing, not only the sheep, by the way, but he saves the king. What's that tell you about his real heart of killing all the Amalekites, by the way? Here's Agag. Well, he's the king of them. Why is he still here? The first thing we see and we look at the consequences is Saul never took personal responsibility for his own actions. Verse 20, and Saul said unto Samuel, "'Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord.'" Samuel just told you you did not obey, and you're sitting there justifying, saying, but I did. I killed all the Amalekites, except for Agag, and I killed all the animals except for the ones we didn't. You can't say accept and say, I completed the task. And yet he's standing there very arrogantly, I believe at this point, Samuel, you're wrong. I did obey. I did exactly what God told me to. I love the sarcasm of Samuel. The first time when Saul says that, you know, we killed them all. And <clears throat> let's go back to, um, Verse 13, Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be thou the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel was like, bah, what's that I hear? <laughs> I think most preachers have a sense of humor that way. But, and then if that's not bad enough, let's go to verse 21. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the chief things, which should have utterly destroyed. You know, Why is it so many leaders can't take personal responsibility for what they've done? They have to blame everybody else for it. Well, it's the people's fault. Well, who's king, Saul? Who gave the order, Saul? Who did God tell the order to Saul? Who was responsible for making sure it got carried out, Saul? Don't blame the people. And even if it was their idea, Saul, you're the king. You're the one that should have said, no, we're not doing that. God said, kill him. So take responsibility for your own action. Grow up and be a man, Saul. I was just following what the people wanted. You are accountable for your own actions. It's not society's fault. It's not your mama's fault. It's not everybody else's fault. You made the choice. You own it, period. Period. We need to remain faithful because God will reward and judge us as individuals. You see, my rewards, and judge, my rewards in heaven are not based on what you have done. They're based on what I have done. Aren't you glad for that? But you can't blame the people. I was just following the people. You know, it's interesting, and this kind of became very evident and I'm not going to get into details, but it came very evident Wednesday in a meeting we were at in Raleigh that while we have a representative form of government, I do represent the somewhere between 16 and 20,000 people of Havelock, and every decision I make, it affects all them, right? But I still have a personal accountability before God of those decisions. And if everybody were to ask me, Let's pass a law that would violate God's law. I still have a greater responsibility to God than to the people. My first accountability is to him, not to the people. Yes, I am accountable to them. But in a situation that I'm not going to get into much, okay, sometimes people think they're no longer accountable to God or the people, that what I think is best. Saul, trying to say, God, God, the people told me to do this is not an excuse because God had said what he was to do. You follow what I'm saying? Secondly, there was no true repentance, but only a sorrow that he got caught. Let me show you and explain. Verse 24. Well, first of all, we just read verses 20 and 21 where Saul says, I did obey. It was the people's fault. Now, after Samuel tells him the very familiar passage there in verses 21 through 23, let's go to verse 24, and Saul said to Samuel, "I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and the word and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord." You say, "Well, he said, "I've sinned." Okay, He's still insinuating it's the people's fault well, I feared the people and I obeyed them. They told me to do it. And you know, that's still my kind of part of my excuse here, but let's go on as if nothing happened. Okay. Let's just put this behind us. I want to be forgiven. And what does he say? Turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. You see, how often do we see this of, I'm sorry, now make it all disappear. You say, so why do you, you may ask, well, why do I say that there was no true repentance? It was just an, I'm sorry, I got caught. How many of you have ever read Psalm 51 after Nathan came to David and said, David, you have sinned, thou art the man with his sin with Bathsheba. There's a total difference in Psalm 51 than what we see here in 1 Samuel 15. See, here in 1 Samuel 15, we see Saul, well, Okay, but you know, I listen to the people and let's just make it all go away and it's all gonna be better now, right? In Psalm 51, we see David with a broken heart crying out to God saying, before thee and thee only have I sinned. And whatever consequences, as you read all the passages related to David's sin with Bathsheba and afterward, David willingly accept every consequence that came his way because he realized he had sinned against a holy God and he was truly sorry for what he'd done. And then be, being part of being repentance means you're willing to accept the consequences for your actions and Saul never wanted to accept the consequences of his actions. He wanted to make it go away. But if I'm truly repentant for what I've done, that means I'm going to man up and take whatever consequences are going to come because of my sin. Do you follow? Do you see that anywhere in the account of Saul? No, you don't. So let's move on. Verse 26, Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. What sad words. He's rejected of god as king and from this point forward we see no no major accomplishments from king saul as a matter of fact david is anointed king while saul is still alive very unusual but it's god showing i have rejected saul and what do we find saul doing the latter part of his life chasing david around like a wild dog like an absolute madman he totally i believe lost his mind. I mean, the only focus of his life now becomes, I want to kill David because David's going to get the throne. Again, showing never having a repentant heart, never accepting the consequences because he even tells his own son, Jonathan, how dare you make a friendship with David? You're supposed to have the throne, not him. You see, the whole focus of Saul's rest of his life was trying to get rid of the consequences of his choice that he made. But the consequences stuck because God said so. And Saul could not, no matter how hard he tried, he could not make the consequences go away. Even when we get to chapter 17 and we find the Philistines defeated, who got the glory for it? Did Saul? Saul killed his thousands, but David his 10,000s. David got the glory even then. And what did that do to Saul? It just makes his blood boil. I hate that little boy. Really? Because most kings would have been rejoicing. Hey, we got a victory over the Philistines. I don't care who won it. I'm gonna, you know, makes me look good as king. But not Saul. He became so embittered because he never accepted the fact that he had truly sinned against the holy God and God was judging him for what he had done. Totally different than what we see in the life of David. Now, did David have consequences of his sin? Yes, he did. But do we see a man who still could rejoice and serve God in David? Yes, we do. Totally different than the results of Saul. Listen, every one of us in this room have made choices we regret in the past. But let's not sit there and dwell on it, and let's not sit there and complain about the consequences of it. Let's accept it, and let's move on and still rejoice in God and realize that we can still be used of God. But let's not become a Saul who becomes bittered because of the consequences of his sin. Here's another horrible thing to happen to him. Let's go to verse 35, chapter 15, the last verse. And Samuel came no more to see Saul on the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is probably one of the uh, horrible consequence of Saul's choice Was the godly counsel of Samuel. How would you like to have Samuel be your counselor? What a godly man Samuel was. And the king had Samuel as his counselor until this day. And it says, Samuel never went to see Saul again until the day of his death the godly counsel that he received at the mouth of Samuel was gone. But worse than that, go to chapter 16 and verse 14. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Worse than losing the godly counsel, he lost the spirit of God. Now I'm glad when we're saved today, we can't lose the spirit of God. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit And I can't explain how the Spirit of God in the Old Testament would come upon men and would leave men. You know, there's things I don't understand, but it's what the Bible teaches. But the Spirit of God left Saul and he was troubled by an evil spirit for the rest of his life. How terrible for Saul. One last consequence. Not only did Saul suffer greatly, but the entire nation suffered as well. You see, choices we make are not done in a vacuum. I hate to hear people say, I'm not hurting anybody else. Yes, you are. Well, if I smoke this pot, I'm only hurting me and all those that love you. Well, if I do this, it's, it's, it's not affecting you. What do you care? You see, as we continue to look through the rest of Saul's life, when we get to chapter 17, which is the chapter in which David defeats Goliath, What do we find Saul and his army? Gloom and despair, defeated, thinking there's no hope because none of us can take on this giant. I believe that's a consequence of what happened here in chapter 15. And then, as I mentioned, as Saul spent the rest of his reign hunting down David, at what cost to the nation that their king, where's where's the king? I need to get this decision made. You know, I can imagine the councils sitting around the table. Well, we need the king here. Yeah, well, he's out in the woods trying to find David. Well, he's been doing that for the last month. I know. Well, when's he going to come back and reign the, the kingdom? Well, he's out hunting David. And then he has the whole army out there with him, hunting David. I mean, how much is that costing the taxpayers, Right. And what's that do for the enemies? How many times do we find Saul out there trying to chase David around and all of a sudden he gets called out because the enemy's attacked? Well, because they see a weakness. Hey, the king's not sitting on the throne. He's not taking care of the king's business. Now's a good time to go attack. Then the army has to get diverted. But instead of having a nice, fresh, ready-to-go army, they're already exhausted because they're running around the woods chasing David at the king's order. I could imagine the nations around Israel mocking Israel Can you imagine the headlines, you know, of this maniac king chasing a kid through the woods? There was lasting consequences for quite a few years on the nation of Israel because of one man's decision, one man's choice. When you and I make choices, Christian, it's never in a vacuum. And every choice we make has consequences. And life is full of choices. We need to make right choices.